I think we're in a certain way helping smallholders to grow, to access modern farming. And I believe this is the revolution Africa needs. Being able to feed itself, being able to build pride about it, being able to provide its people with a rewarding activity is really something that drives our action. And also, I really believe that with food being now considered as a threat, as a challenge by everyone, there is something that could be build a new relationship between rural areas, cities, that could be much more productive, proactive, and that could really help also youth believe agriculture could be an opportunity for them. Welcome to the African Optimist podcast. I am your host, Sanya Gura, and on this show, I unearth the wealth of opportunities that exist across the continent and speak to the many inspiring people who are shaping its future. Now, in this episode, we could have focused on the tech side of agriculture with agripreneur Hamza Chaham, because it is digital technology that is really turning agriculture into an exciting scientifically-based business. And Hamza's company, Sowit, S-O-W-I-T, is using AI-powered tools like sensors and probes, trackers and drones in their work with farmers, government and food producers to successfully help optimize yields. For Hamza, however, this is not where the hope for food security lies. Agritech involves powerful tools, but it is the farmer who ultimately needs to use them. And given that the majority of smallholder farmers grow their crops on a mere 12% of the world's farmland, yet feed 80% of people in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, it is with these smallholder farmers where tech can have the biggest impact in the future. But how to get this tech into the hands of farmers who often are not digitally savvy and rely on traditional methods to grow their food? That is the focus of today's insightful conversation with Hamza, as he shares his journey to understanding that the farmer is at the center of the push for innovation and food security, not technology. Hamza, for those who don't know Sowit and have never heard of it before, can you just give us an idea of what Sowit does? Sowit actually is a company that was created to help African farmers bridge the productivity gap, help them earn more sustainably, help them be proud of what they're doing through technology, which means helping them on a daily basis to take the right decisions, to face an increasingly tough environment, to ensure the security of their families and of their communities. And these technologies for us were AI, satellite imagery, remote sensing, drones, IoT, pretty much everything that is going on now on the tech made available to farmers. Most solutions that are offered are always on the ground and they normally revolve around seeds, equipment, irrigation. It's everything on the ground and it's always about provision of tangible things. Whereas with Sowit, number one, you got a solution in the sky and number two, it's not about those tangible things at all. Yes, yes, yes. You're, you're right. When it comes to farming, farmers tend to hate things that are simply nice to have. So they like to see things to see directly the result. So usually the business that work in farming are business that are quite straightforward, easy to understand, uh, result-driven. 
And we decided that we would go the other way simply because this was the bottleneck. Farmers were getting seeds, tractors, inputs, sometimes insurance and sometimes even credit, but still they were not performing as they should be or enough. And when you compare the performance of North African farmers to South European farmers that sometimes simply play in similar conditions, they are very different. And they are different because the access to information, to expertise, to data is not really similar, is not really, I would say, available the same way, simply because we don't live in the same conditions. We don't have these cooperatives. We don't have these universities. We don't have these consultants. We don't have all this information ecosystem. So we believe that there was this information bottleneck that maybe for the first time we needed to see agriculture as an activity that needed to get more data-driven and less, I would say, down-to-earth. And the only way to do it and to do it on a large scale and create the right impact is really to build based on technology. It was simply for us the easiest way to create the largest impact possible. You actually were working for a drone company for quite a while, and it seems that one of the companies folded because there was not enough interest from farmers in this data-driven model. And you were, at the time, 2014, in the drones business, but I think drones were, if they were disseminated, it was always to big institutions or big farmers. Nobody was focusing on small farmers. So what happened in the last 10 years? I, I think there are many trends, there are many shaping trends that happened along the way. But the most important is that when you build something, you build it for the others, you build it for their needs, you do not build it for yourself. What's happening with a lot of tech companies is that people believe in technology more than they believe in their customers or in what their customers need. So they end up simply building things that please them in a certain way. And with a lot of fundraising, things exist, but these things should not exist. In a real economy where people need to live with what they earn on a daily basis, this shouldn't exist. Of course, there are always some very crazy bets people take and that create history and adventure and make history to a certain way. But this sh shouldn't be the norm or the standard. Mm -hmm. And I believe that what we learned, what I personally learned with this experience is that we didn't listen to what the people really want. We wanted to see this change so strongly in the market that we simply forgot that along the way there were people that needed to pay at the end of the day. And I think that the, the changes that happened over the way are multiple. First, in Morocco or in North Africa, first, it's natural constraint, natural resources. Climate change is hitting so hard. People that were making fun of all of those that were talking about climate change are really finding it very hard now. We have farmers every day closing farms, not willing to dig any metro anymore. Energy cost is so high. Markets are hesitant and input costs is increasing. So margins are not there. So first, when people stop earning money, they start finding solutions. And I believe that this is one of the main trends that made Morocco one of the countries where adoption of such technology is probably one of the higher in the continent. The second is probably related to the fact that we're observing a new generation of farmers. Mm -hmm. In Africa, farmers 55, 60 years old, people that have a certain mindset, work based on experience, 
do not really believe what they listen to, mm. but only what they see as a result. But the fact is that what we see when we sit with our customers is that there are a lot of change there, generational change. People are on WhatsApp. Willing to see what's happening without driving 500 kilometers, mm. willing to control things remotely, willing also at the end of the day to experience a different way of farming, which would less rely maybe on experience, maybe on field expertise, but more probably on science, agronomy, data, maybe because they don't have the experience their parents also have, or maybe because they're facing situations that their parents never faced when we're seeing currently the rainfall. There is no farmer in Morocco that lived the situation we're living today. So why his or her experience would really help taking the right decision? And last time we were the farmer, he was saying, since I was born, I've never seen such a season. And this is a 65 years old farmer. Mm -hmm. Okay, good experience is very precious, but taking decision on irrigating when you've never seen an olive tree lacking water for three months, probably science would help better than experience. And what I'm saying science is, of course, the result of experience, the result of agronomy, decision rules, data, the result of listening to the trees, of listening to the crops, and of taking right decisions. So this generational change is really bringing a new way of doing agriculture. Probably low margins and generation change are creating something that is very strong. As the youth, they want to earn more. So with margins decreasing, the way of doing things changing and natural resources putting, I would say, a life threat on agriculture, a lot of people are trying to see what technology can do. Mm -hmm. And our positioning is that we do not do technology. We simply help farmers solving the problem they have. Mm -hmm. So any technology is beneficial there. Tell me, what is the problem that farmers face on a day-to-day -day basis that you were starting to look at drones possibly solving? What we're doing is mainly providing information, actionable information that help farmers take decisions on a daily basis, but we're doing more. Information helps getting credit, helps getting insurance, helps understanding the fertilizer need. So information is more or like the engine of working with the farmers and then it creates multiple service and added value. But farmers ask on a daily basis quantity of water they need to irrigate, need of fertilizer, when they should harvest, what quality they would get, how many workers do they need to perform the harvest. They ask daily questions that would drive profitability or not. If a farmer do not irrigate the right quantity to get the right fruit size, at the end of the day, it's not an export size. So then all the expenses that were done over the way are not really rewarded by the right revenue stream. It means that simply the result of the outcome of, of the work of farmers, which is finally the yields and the quality, heavily depend on all the decisions that they take over the season. And all these decisions that they take over the season are decisions that could be optimized simply by right measurements, real crop water need, fertilizer need, nutrient at soil level, weather, there are so many operations that can be optimized. And what we started doing first with drones, it's simply observing the crop, observing the pests, observing the stress, observing the health status of the crop, of the plot, of the farm, of the vegetation to help farmers driving 
better decision making. How did you make that transition from being a drone tech man to farming? I know you knew a lot about drones, but you grew up in an urban environment. How much did you know about farming and how did you go about learning about farming? Yes, it's a very good question. I think starting with drones simply in a certain way helped me understand that technology has a lot of limits that finally driving change is driving more human and psychological and behavioral change than driving any technological change and that I really needed to transition in a status in which I wouldn't be condemned or working with one technology but I would be free to use anything I want simply to help this behavior evolve which in a certain way made me see technology on a broader spectrum and farmers at the center. And I believe that, of course, you're right. I grew up in an urban area. I had a very urban life, but I, I always felt very quiet and very happy when I was away. And I always, I would say, I was always looking for a way to escape from cities. And I was always escaping, but getting back because I still live how exciting and dynamic also urban environment could be. So this transition is first a transition of positioning technology at the right place and farmer at the center. Secondly, a transition of finding where I could find my pleasure and my accomplishment in terms of exposing to rural environment more than urban environment. And also I would say simply the fact that I spend so much time with farmers made me in a certain way probably be the person that talked with the most so many farmers and everyone has a way of seeing things a way of understanding nature a way of driving a certain mm -hmm. strategy but w when you talk to 10,000 of them and you try really to understand them it also builds a certain i would say psychology at which point did you realize because you were working for a french company from my understanding i don't know if you were based in france or based in morocco but at which point did you realize I actually don't want to focus on using <clears throat> drones for institutions and for big farmers, but I actually want to work with the smaller farmers? It's something I had since the beginning. I was happy signing large customers, but I didn't feel uh, satisfied. Uh, I, I didn't feel personal accomplishment in doing this. I was just doing my job. So I always had this voice in my head saying, look, this is not going to work because at a certain point, it's good to help the front runners do even better, but this is not how Africa would, will emerge. And I always had this, this feeling of doing something that was not complete, but that was still necessary because these people, they had the good practice. So I needed first to understand how these strong people, these large farms, reach these certain levels in very tough environments because I always believe that they have the good practice in terms of agronomy, in terms of doing things because they still perform better than others. But I always had in mind that the only sense or meaning this could have is making this more available to others. And this is where technology comes. Technology is also building around the best practice widely available with very little limitation. And I think that this, this wasn't something I realized. This was something I was always driving, heading to, 
but I didn't have the means, uh, the tools to get to it, I would say, with the right ambition. Take me through an experience of a farmer you perhaps have worked with for me to understand. I think I'm, I want to use your services. You come in, what do you put on my property and what does that allow me to do? What does it do for my yield? And what does it help me do further down the line, you know, as me being in the value chain? Talk me through that process in a way. Maybe that will help me understand. Yeah. So let's say you're a wheat farmer and so we come visit your farm. So we come with a lot of sensors. We will directly, straight directly on the field, measure the soil fertility. If there is, if there are, if there is crop, if there are crops there, we'll measure also crops. We'll see the biomass, how much you're performing. We'll see also the area. We'll have an idea about the soil humidity. So we'll take a lot of data straight without even you feeling we're taking it. And by the time we discuss, we already identified so many levers that can make you earn more sustainably. So we'll tell you, but why aren't you using this fertilizer? Because it seems that you don't have enough nitrogen on your soil, but you're still using this one. But why did you do did the seeding with 200 kilograms of grains a hectare? You should have done 100 here because soil is very good and 300 here because soil is bad. But why did you use this tractor in order to do this operation? Because you compacted a lot. The, so... Along the way, we'll be identifying all the limiting factors, all the bottlenecks that prevent you from achieving best possible performance. And by the time we finish discussing, we would have a proposition for you. We would tell you, look, what do you want to do with this field? What do you want to do with the plot? How do you see, how do you see the future? And of course, there are people that are comfortable with what they're doing and will be happy simply to walk away or to simply help with what they need. But the people that want to see the change, we would be providing them with this first over a mobile app they would set up and we would get constant recommendations so as to sort out all the bottleneck one by one based on satellite imagery, based on the sensors, based on the data you tell us, based on all this knowledge that is being built on your farm. And those that will tell us, especially smallholders, most of them are illiterate. If you take Morocco, Tunisia, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, they would tell us, what are you talking about? Soil fertility, what is this? Nitrogen, what is this? And we will tell them, look, we have agents, they're trained, they're from your village, they talk your language, and they will digest this for you. They will help you achieve best possible performance because agriculture is first a human-sized and built activity so you need to drive the psychological change and they would tell us really these people will help me for this and this and this we say not only they would help you but we can finance all of this for you in a certain sense that we would provide you a loan that would enable you to ensure that you upgrade your crop management because we can get to a certain point, you tell us, but I don't have this machinery, but I can afford this fertilizer or this seeds. It shouldn't be a problem. From the day we start working, from the day we can get a bundle with everything you need until you reach the performance and with insurance that enable to secure the harvest in a certain way that you would never be in a position over which working with us would start being a burden. So. It's really about observing, understanding the bottlenecks, 
understanding the culture, the psychology, and driving change with the right balance between technology and human assistance. For a lot of farmers who don't deal with any kind of data, their reaction, is it curious or is it horrified or is it, you know, I'm thinking of us even looking at AI, you know, as your everyday person looking at AI and I'm thinking of a farmer must have the same feelings. Um, it's a bit scary, no? This thing in the sky that's going to look at me and my crop. Actually, I don't even think farmer process this kind of, uh, of, of reasoning. Uh, what, what farmer want to see is uh, people that help them. They really don't care mm. about what solution it is, the origin of mm. the solution, mm. the country, the people. They want to see people they can trust and that can help them. And I think that it's very funny what you say, because from their side, it's a very low-tech technology. From their side, there is no technology involved, actually. So if, they, if there were, we wouldn't have adoption or user adoption. So from their side, it's very simple. From their side, it's okay, you need to do this, you need to drive this way, you need to put this quantity, you need to get to this agri-dealer to get this product. It does not change anything from their perspective. But from our perspective, it's very high-tech to be able to drive so much decision-making with so much complexity and variability and also so much psychology at the end of the day. So you're right, but in a certain way, what farmer like is trust, community, values, principles. That's where they look for. The rest is the yield is going to decide about it. Um, I'm just interested in what you're saying that, you know, they don't really have to deal with technology. I mean, that has been one of the biggest criticisms for people looking for solutions for smallholder farmers across the whole of Africa. Don't even bother going the tech route. Farmers are not ready. The data costs are too high. The access, smartphones might not be where they need to be in the hands of farmers. So, you know, how do you deliver this information to farmers then? Surely there must be some kind of interaction with technology. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I think first we are simply aware about the fact that behind any farmer, there would be someone driving change. It wouldn't be some interface alone and some message alone because without trust, you wouldn't have any change. And especially this one that is massive, it's about making people put away 30 years of experience and decide to do things differently. So first, a lot of tech companies, all the scalability software, all the things, they end up loving what they're doing and they end up simply falling in love with their product, which is one of the bias you will have in the continent everywhere. But in the continent, you couldn't live this way simply because people do not buy that many nice to have things. People only live with the essentials. So all the things that live because of marketing ads, probably it would be hard to last. The second aspect of it is that when I'm saying low-tech, uh, by low-tech, I mean sometimes messages, simply messages, but sometimes calls, voice notes, WhatsApp. I would really say for me, low-tech is tech that do not require any effort from the farmer. For example, WhatsApp is really predominantly used in rural areas and in Morocco, 79 percent of Moroccans use WhatsApp. So it creates a space for communication, sharing media, knowledge, information. 
But if you want farmer to involve, you would need with this to have physical events, to work with them, to train them, to show them. So it would, it would not be enough. And I agree with the criticism that farmers are not necessarily tech-savvy. I mean, of course, because they have so many things to deal with. Cash is short, credit is very hard, land collateral is complex, input cost is high. How, how do you want them to connect to these things that evolve on a daily basis? And especially the fact that connectivity is still low. And in the case on, in, of Morocco, literacy is very low also. Too much expectation from people that are lagging behind and that have been lagging behind for decades with a train that is going faster and faster. So the job is not on the farmer side. The job is on the tech company. And probably this tech company needs to be community driven and farmers, farmer driven if it wants to have a chance to build trust with these people. You seeing you have taken the time to really get to know farmers and earn their trust. How has that affected what you've designed in terms of how information gets delivered? Do, do they have to buy things from you or what is your business model? So what we understood in the beginning, spending time with farmers, is that, is that you need to focus on, on, on really the strongest bottleneck and that you need to sort it first before you try sorting out others. So in the case of smallholder farmers, this bottleneck was funding. It's one thing to tell people, look, use these certified seeds and these quality inputs, but they just don't have money to pay children's school. And you want them to pay more for the input. So spending time with farmers helped us understanding that there are two bottlenecks that are really, I would say, gateway to any change. The first is being able to enable, to fund a better crop management based on better inputs, seeds, machinery, and so on. These are yield factors at the end of the day, enabling to get more profitability and upgrading the performance. At a certain point, it only means driving the performance of this smallholder farmer to the performance of his neighbor that is doing better because he can afford better things. And the second bottleneck was market access in a way that this could only be possible if at the end of the day, there is someone paying the right price. So when we understood this, talking with farmers and spending time with farmers, we simply understood that what we were first selling, meaning information and technology, was void if not bundled with financing, enabling this information really to serve and really to be actionable and to be used because there is the money to buy the right fertilizer that you advise. And from the other hand, if at the end of the day, this yield increase generates enough revenue for everyone to be happy, the bank, the farmer, us, the other suppliers. And we simply observed that we were only working with large farms because they were the only one having the necessary funding and market access and especially export market access so that they could digest quietly this information and make money out of it. But then spending time with smallholders made us realize that we were not up to our ambition and to our mission, which is really helping everyone to access modern farming. And then we understood 
that what we were doing needed to go in the back plan, in the back scene, and that it needed to be bundled and it needed to be, I would say, an element of a larger offer. There would be no worries. We're doing all of this together with the right funding, the right market access, and you will not even feel that you are upgrading technically. So it's really the way we evolved with the business model first. There was a software business model based on data access, subscription fees per hectare, and simply large farms paying it. And then with an offering that was more like a credit orchestration, a value chain orchestration over which we were co-piloting the activity with the farmer based on the fact that we sorted out two main bottlenecks, which were funding with low collateral and then market access with off-takers being contractually secured with a minimum guaranteed price. If I can summarize, if I understood that correctly, you're still operating on a subscription basis, but it's part of a bigger bundle. And when you talk about offtake, are you saying that inbuilt in this bundle is the guarantee that once the farmer reaches a yield, there will be somebody who will not only take that yield or the crop from them, but at a specific price, agreed upon price that is agreed upon by both parties, possibly in advance. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay. How does your subscription model work? Uh, what, what the farmer gets is data on a daily basis and he, the farmer pays fees based on the size of the plot. So these are fees per hectare. So if you're 10 hectare, you would be paying $200 fees to get all over the year, all the data. So it's very basic. And then you are subscribed to an information, I would say, uh, coming and flowing. And then uh, every year you renew this uh, subscription. Your subscription fee is based on the hectare, the size of the plot or the size of the farm. But there's another aspect to the tiering mechanism in terms of the delivery of the information. Is that correct? So, yes, you have the data. And then the delivery depends on multiple aspects. But mainly, is it automated or is it human-based? Because the automated, it means we are simply sending you data on a daily basis and you live your life the way you want to do it. And human-based means we have people digesting this for you and helping you on a daily basis. And this, these are really the difference, you, the main difference you would have when, when we are having this subscription is mainly subscription or subscription plus advisor. And then when we evolve to the other business model, which is making this technical assistance available to anyone by sorting out the credit challenge, we simply realized that small orders cannot work with automated subscription services. All, all the small orders we work with need assistance. This legacy business model of software, full automation exists even internationally, but only for large agro-industrial producers. But tell me, who is funding this whole bundle and who is funding that whole ecosystem that you've built and how sustainable is it? We have actually partnerships with the World Bank and the International Finance Corporation that put a guarantee on our farmers in the sense that any farmer that work with Soit 
is guaranteed by the IFC, which means that we can get a loan for these farmers from any financial institution. And if the farmer is defaulting, um, IFC covers a percentage of the loss for the financial institutions, which means that it de-risk or mitigate the risks financial institutions perceive in farming because they're like, if I give 100 on solid portfolio, at the end of the day, I'm sure there is 50 that if everyone is, if everyone is not able to pay back, I will get 50. So it means that this portfolio is at the end of the day highly secure because the chance that everyone default is zero. All this principle, all this business relies on the fact that agricultural financing, agri-finance, is now a good opportunity for financial institutions. Yeah, that was my question, because is this going to be the initial funding? But in the long run, the hope is that the banking system takes over, the Moroccan banking system or Senegalese, because they can see that farmers, smallholder farmers, are no longer such a big risk as they were because there is this data involved and there's this information involved. Is that the long-term thinking in terms of sustainable um, farming? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a way to give them appetite. I also think that they have customer portfolios that are steady. Um, growth is not obvious now. Inflation, macroeconomic condition make them a bit stagnate. So for them, it's a good growth lever. But if we want to make it interesting for the farmers, it needs to be a very competitive product from an interest rate and from a collateral. Farmers do not have to bet on their land if they want to finance a season. And the only way to get to this level of competitiveness in terms of product design is to get large institutions like the World Bank involved with their weight to say food security is a must, is something we're not willing to negotiate and is something all our partners need to involve in. Uh, because if you rely on the bank alone, they, they think risk first, they don't know rural areas, they don't know the farmers. I don't blame them, they're just playing the way they should be playing to get the right profit at the end of the year for the shareholders and also the regulation, bail one, two, three, you know, all the mitigation and prudential regulation make it very hard to finance a farmer because at the end of the day, you cannot refinance the activity the same way. You cannot sue the farmer the same way. It's another world. So for them, getting these large institutions showing the signal that this is where growth is a very critical moment for farming and for us. Hamza, how do you personally see risk? Because I think a lot of people, a lot of investors, when they're looking at you and they're listening to you speak, they must go, this guy must be absolutely crazy. Uh, you know, you are dealing with one of the highest risk communities across the whole of Africa. How do you personally view risk and what would you say to them? Be building a farmer community today is probably the less risky thing to do because at least I will have where to hide. <laughs> and some place to eat. Exactly. I will have my people and my bread. No, but I think, I think it's a massive opportunity. Yes, you're right. There is a very strong risk behind farming simply because of weather change and simply because of the fact that these activities are still in the informal economy. So 
it's very hard to streamline all of this and to make it understandable by everyone. But I'm happy that farming is now recentered by the fact that there is a new geopolitical order. Wheat is not available as it was before. Farmers are central. Food sovereignty is becoming something that people look at. And inflation, when tomato is reaching a certain price, everyone is becoming crazy. People simply forget that everything starts with agriculture. And banks also, they forgot. So in a certain way, I like to think about history and I like to think that all the economic modernity started with farm revolutions, with green revolutions, that they freed up labor for the industry, that they built additional income for consumption, that they built culture, that they built communities. And I think that everyone that is simply honest enough to think about the contribution of farmers to our daily life needs to reconsider helping them getting more comfort. I would say that it's risky, yes, because it's very hard to process and our job is to process it and standardize it as well as protecting farmers because we don't want them to be crushed by the way the economy and capitalism are working today. And we will always protect those that are honest because we will stay with them and those that are not, they deserve what they deserve, justice. But the fact is that now more and more people are simply aware that financing farming is necessary to ensure stability and continuity. And I see certain government allocating very high subsidy schemes to farmers with very low profitability mm. and very low efficiency simply because they're afraid. And I believe that we're offering a way for those that are afraid of farmers not bringing enough tomatoes on the table or threatening the stability of, I would say, very stable democracies. One thing that struck me when I read about um, you saying that farmers are actually very lonely in their work. They bear the brunt of it. They're at the beginning of the value chain. They really have to bear the brunt. And then you've got the people who take the crops and they just sit there and drum their fingers and say like, well, show us what you got, baby, and let's see if we'll take it. And you were saying something about that cost being necessary to be borne by everybody along the value chain. How is that going to work? Or how do you foresee that working in the future? And does Sobit have a role to influence that? And are you influencing it? Yeah, I, I really think what you touch upon is uh, how value is shared within the value chain um, and where justice is uh, regarding the fact that there is someone working a year long and someone working a day in a certain sense. I really believe that farmers, they're alone, and maybe this is where they're fragile or weak, is that they don't expose enough to the external world and they don't necessarily play by the rule or by the game of the market in the sense that, you know, they're in their world, they do their protection. They don't want to bother themselves with negotiating. Uh, they just want to sell and come back to the farm. It's something that shouldn't make them earn less than others. It's something that is related to the fact they ha didn't, don't have the same background. They're not exposed to cities where everything is negotiated. They live in a different world in a certain sense. And I think our job is to bring lever in this to bring balance for them. Why? Because first, if they group, if they are a community, if we have enough production, 
we have a weight on the market. So first is simply the bargain and the lever related to being a community with principles, values, and people go in the same way. And I believe that this is very important for farmers because when you see those who succeeded, these are very well-led cooperatives with strong management principles, people not being there for money, but being there to achieve something that is higher and stronger for the people. So first is really about making them work together because it's not obvious. It's not obvious. These are tribes, families, groups of people, not obvious. Sometimes even a brother, brothers do not want to work together, but we need to make them aware about the benefit of working together and about the benefit of grouping around technical assistance and around a better result is really something that we would together benefit from. And I think they understand it very well for the reason you touched upon, which is they have off-takers or buyers come in and say, oh, look at this wheat, oh, it's bad quality what you're telling me, I don't buy these things, and they throw it on, on, on the farmer. And this is where we come in. This is what we're playing on. We're playing on giving back power to farmers, pride, the fact that together they're stronger. And we're able to do it because we're natural. We're an information company. We're simply doing measurements and playing around decision rules that are reference decision rules developed by leading agronomists or by research institutes that help everyone thrive. So to answer finally your question, I would say that sharing value, value across the value chain means having lever. No one will share just to share. And having lever means enabling farmers to have a certain way based on the community they built and how intense and strong is, is this community. And our job is to enable this community to be built. Why? Because we talk the farmer's language and we talk the off-taker language. So we will protect our farmers against anyone that would try to play by the legal rule or the business rule or the time rule. So we would play this role of being, in a certain sense, the agent of fairness or of justice in this tough game, which is not easy at all, but in a certain way required when the country does not have enough wheat to feed its people. I mean, I wanted to ask you, give us an example of where it's worked or a place where you've come in and people have not really necessarily been working together, but so it has come in and possibly already started to see a difference in the community. Give us an idea of what's possible here. So there is a region in Morocco called the Gharb region. It's, I would say, the cereal-producing region. We've been starting to work with communities then. They're offering the full service, which means the credit and the crop management and the insurance and the offtake and everything. I mean, orchestrating this value chain to work more efficiently. And clearly what we observed is day one, of course, people challenge everything. But first what they challenge, they challenge your values. Because at the end of the day, they say, what will happen if no one produces? If we got a full drought season, what will happen if we don't see you anymore, your agents and your technical agents? It's everywhere, every time a lot of challenge. But, but, but what you understand is what they're challenging behind this is, are you part of us or are you there? I think what's very important first is to work with 
people that are from the community. So our agents, the people that spread the information, help on a daily basis, are from the communities. So we bring this global knowledge, but we disseminate down with the people that digest it for their people at the end of the day. When we started, we were advising them, for example, to do things a bit differently. And, you know, we're reluctant. So they were, no, but I wanted it this way and this way. Um, and actually one of the elder that gathered everyone and said to everyone, he had already worked with us as part of the other service and said to everyone, look, so it is our last chance because we've been working for 40, 30 years. And he said, is there anyone here in this gathering that sold the tons of cereals more than $200? No one. So it is bringing 250. Is there anyone here that has, has been working with engineers, improving machinery? So it, and to be honest with you, it's not us. Of course, we bring all of this, but without these people leading the change and different levels of digestion from one to the other and bringing all of this to the community, it will be void. Because these people at the end of the day, I wouldn't say they don't care about producing more, but they care more about building in a certain way with certain values than producing more. So they accept to lose if they lose with their values, you know. And, 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 and one of them already even told us, I'm really happy with what you are doing. And actually, even if I don't know the yield of this year, I will renew with you next year. And it was weird to me. I'm, I'm, I'm like more driven by result. And then all of them, because it was during a, like a gathering, all of them said, yes, we will all renew. You can consider that we're part of it. And then to answer the question about the journey is that when you get to a region, when you get to a community, what you build is not simply based on changing practices and getting more bottom line and more money in the pocket is about driving the community to a new way of doing things, to a new life, to a new mode. And this, they see it much more than the result. And this for them is much stronger than the rest. So when we get there, we ensure we have the right people. We have an operating system enabling to provide all the knowledge. We have regular meetings and technical assistance and trainings. We fight for them so that any supplier provide the product with a price that is more competitive than a market and higher quality and that they sell at the good price at the end of the year. And I think when you get this on the ground, it's enough. Just let them talk and let the market decide if it is competitive enough and interesting enough for more and more people to join. You were founded, I think, in 2018. So I don't know how long these cycles take. I'm not a farmer and I'm very urban in Johannesburg. Um, what, what have you seen with your own eyes in terms of the difference you've been able to make on the ground? There are so many. There are so many. When you, say, when you think water, the farms we work in consume 20 to 35% water less than the others because we have measurements. We know the weather. We know the crop status. We know the humidity of the soil. How can you decide how much water your crop needs without knowing any of this? So it's... I wouldn't say it's easy because psychological change is tough, but the technical change is easy. Room for improvement is huge. You come, people, they just open the pump 
the, not the right time so that the kilowatt is very expensive. They just keep the pool full so that evaporation is high. There are so many things to optimize along the way, too many things actually to optimize. When you see the quality, the calibers, the fruit size depends on scientific factors, the diameter of fruit, the diameter of the trunk, when do you irrigate, when you don't, the nutrients, these are decision rules, research centers modeled, made rational and understandable decades ago. But we still don't have the way to use them because it's based on measurements that are not available or too expensive, lab-based. When you see also, for example, the nutrient, the fertilization, there are so many farmers that fertilize just based on experience. My, my plot needs 90 kilograms of nitrogen and the 60 kilograms of boar, for example. But you do the analysis and you're like, but it does not need nitrogen. Yes, you have the symptom. Yes, your experience is right. When I see the leaf, you have the symptom. But the fact is that you don't have enough of this other element, molybden. And without molybden, nitrogen is void because it couldn't be digested by the tree. So people think farming is something that is easy. You have an Excel spreadsheet with operations and the rules and you apply. Farming is as complex as a human body. If you don't take a blood test, you will never know if you lack iron or I don't know if you like vitamin D. So, of course, doctors are good to guess because they know the symptoms. But there are so many different things that could happen. And a lot of doctors prefers analyzing a blood test than simply saying, yeah, this is what you need. Because there are so many things that could be going on there. So... I really think that on, on the change that we drive, we really simply make things more optimal based on real measurements. And we were ourselves surprised by the fact that simple decision-making could drive massive change. And I'm just thinking as I'm listening to you, you know, we focus so much on the yield in terms of uh, plants, but there's that old saying, how does it go? Knowledge is power. What, what have you seen when you've interacted with farmers, once they are getting this knowledge, what does it do to them? Yeah, you're right. I think uh, there are some farmers that I admire. Farmers that irrigate apple trees less than olive trees that, that are very, very efficient in what they are doing because they have knowledge. In a certain sense, that because they acquired the right way, the right measurement tools, the right understanding of the crop because they speak to their crops. When you get to this point, you start to be an agent of change because everyone knows you're knowledgeable. And you start being the one in this region that everyone comes to. And it's very positive. If we had a lot of these pioneers of these people, we would be doing much better. The thing is that decision-making in farming is complex because it's not as straightforward as we think one farmer taking a decision. You know, you have suppliers, they want to sell more. Uh, fertilizer. You have also the fact that you have a lot of consultants that are there and trying to push this solution and not this solution. It's very hard for a farmer to know how to trust. And the thing is that those who have knowledge today and that use this knowledge for the benefit of the people, there are not that many. 
uh, in the sense that they would be using the knowledge to defend an irrigation solution. Look, you need to use this drip irrigation or they will use this knowledge maybe to defend a fertilizer rather than another. And that's what we are lacking in a certain sense. The economy got really, every, everything is about, I don't know the word in English, but in French it's marchandisation, it's merchandise, merchandising. Everything got merchandised. Uh, and that's why we need communities. That's why we need communities to be built around values and people to hold strongly their responsibilities and to be accountable for everything they're saying and they're doing. Because money has, in a certain way, perverted a lot of the good decision-making and a lot of the processes. Let us look at the fact that you're not just busy in Morocco. You are actually working across numerous countries. So where exactly does SOET work across Africa? Yes. So we have two services, as we discussed before, the subscription-based service and then the credit orchestration, which is the value chain orchestration, the full bundle. For the subscription-based, we have users and customers in maybe more than 100 countries. When I connect to the Google Analytics and I see the user of the app, I think it's 120 or 125. Sometimes we discover new places. Mm. These are people that can connect. They just draw the boundaries of their fields and they start getting data with satellite. But strong customer database is in Ivory Coast, Tunisia, Morocco, Senegal. This is where we have, I would say, thousands of real customers, not only curious people that discovered the app on the Play Store and started using it, But for the credit orchestration so far, it's only Morocco and we're only starting in Côte d'Ivoire because understanding community requires years. I would rather prefer focusing for this service on a specific geography rather than trying to scale it up. Yeah, that was my next question. It doesn't sound like it's easy to scale up, number one. And number two, have you got any thoughts of coming to Southern Africa where, of course, the similar need, no water, fertilization is a huge problem. Yeah. You're right. The credit orchestration is not easily scalable. I would even say it's not that scalable. You need to choose your battle in a certain way for this. Uh, probably you can work with some partners. For example, we can provide our tech stack and our knowledge mm -hmm. to a cooperative that would start being more efficient. Definitely there could be some partnership over which the person that knows the culture gets equipped with the right tooling. But you're right, it's a lot about understanding the communities, and this takes time to understand how people think, what they believe, what they want to see. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, really, it's really culture. On the other side, for the subscription-based business, which is more like a software SaaS business, for this one, yes, South Africa is definitely uh, on, on our roadmap. We believe there are farmers that experience similar issues in terms of water shortage, in terms of quality, in terms of forecasting. We believe we can help them, but probably with the right partners locally again. I wouldn't dare understand how it works simply because I understood how it works in a certain way here. So much kilometers, so many meetings. I, I wouldn't have the energy, honestly, to go through the same process. It was very heavy uh, psychologically. Each time you go on the field, you come back and so many things you need to process and digest. And this gap between rural people living in difficult conditions and, this, and cities enjoying uh, a European-style living, 
is something that psychologically is hard to, to afford to a certain point. So there are not that many markets that are interesting for us. We're Africa for Africa, so we're not focusing on other markets. We believe there are so many room for improvement here. We believe Africans now have the ability to contribute to the change they want to see here. So yeah, we're very focused on specific markets. And if we were to grow, we would grow with people that know the culture of the area they would work in. Tell me something. No journey is without its really low moments. Was there ever a moment where you just thought, you know what, this is actually too big a job. I actually can't think of continuing this. Have you had those kinds of moments? Yeah, I, I have these moments. But the thing is, the thing that is weird is that every time I have this moment, the energy I get one minute after is massive. So I'm like, yes, it's too hard. This public authority does not want to deliver these permits. Farmers, uh, there is no rain anymore. It's starting to be in tight. Cash management is complex. And the very time I have this feeling, I have the feeling it's so exciting. <laughs> really, really. And, and, and sometimes I wonder, I say, how can you, how can it be so... No, rock and up roll. Up and down, yes. Up and down. But I believe that it's tough. It's very tough. And I have some friends saying, Hamza, would you advise entrepreneurship? And I'm very cautious because really from a psychological point of view, I'm very happy I have a family I can rely on. I'm very happy I have a certain psychological stability, but it's so tough. There are certain days over which you're a pitching ball, but I like it. I like it because I believe that's the life I want to live in a certain way. I'm not interested in living a more stable life. It's tough, but it's fun. Um, why should people be excited about what Soit is doing? I think we're in a certain way helping smallholders to grow, to access modern farming. And I believe this is the revolution Africa needs. Being able to feed itself, being able to build pride about it, being able to provide its people with a rewarding activity is really something that drives our action. And also, I really believe that with food being now considered as a threat, as a challenge by everyone, there is something that could be build a new relationship between rural areas, cities that could be much more productive, proactive, and that could really help also youth believe agriculture could be an opportunity for them. I'm sure you've heard a lot of people say, I know in South Africa, I've done a couple of interviews where people say nobody wants to be a farmer anymore. What would you say about that? I think it's all about First, the perception of farming that is perceived as a burden, as a very difficult activity, but that could be also a data-driven, interesting activity with science in it, with challenge, with profitability. So it's about changing the minds and also about making better margins because people want to be able to afford university for their children, to afford good food, to go out, and this means that farming needs to be an activity not only for survival, but to be able to thrive. And that's also part of the answer we're bringing on the table by making value chain more efficient and by making the share farmers get 
more fair given the work they put in. You know, there's so many stereotypes that exist about various countries in Africa. If you were to think of something where you've traveled in various countries where you came across people that had no idea about Morocco, is there anything that you want to set straight, a prejudice that people might have that you have come across? Yeah, actually, for Morocco, it's on the other way. So sometimes where I'm in West Africa, they're like, you Moroccans are in Europe. It's not in Africa. But, but, but the thing is that we share exactly the same issues. We have the same productivity levels for certain crops. So we're pretty much similar, actually, except that indeed Morocco, with a certain stability and with also probably a certain integration to the globalization, enabled its people to seize more opportunity. But it's funny because I'm like, no, actually, you don't understand our issues because you're more in, in, in advanced countries. But when you see literacy levels, when you see productivity, rural areas in Africa are quite similar wherever you are. For episode show notes and exclusive content, visit africanoptimist.co.za, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platforms or listen via our website. Thank you for spending time with us.